And we are in the book of Job. We are in chapter 2, skin for skin. The book of Job is located just before the Psalms. If you haven't been there recently, that's where you need to be. The book of Job, right before the book of Psalms, the title of the message tonight is Skin for Skin. If you're just catching up with the book of Job, the first chapter is probably one of the most well-known chapters, and that's when God has a conversation with Satan, or literally the Satan, the adversary. And he brings up Job in the presence of Satan. And Satan begins to question Job's motives for following God. Does he follow you for no reason? No, it's because you've blessed him. You've put a hedge about him. You've blessed everything in his hands. Remove the hedge. Take the blessings away. And what did Satan say? He'll curse you to your face. Now, that's what Satan thought of Job. But God's God's assessment of Job was he was... A righteous man. He was the greatest man of the East, but he was blameless. He was always turning away from evil. He feared God. He was a man of high integrity. That's why God boasted on him in the first place. And so we can see behind the veil, behind life, there is a spiritual reality. There is another dimension to life that we don't always take into consideration. And it is this battle and, and this, this spiritual dimension to life. And Job, you know, he didn't really know what was going on. And so in chapter 1, here's what we could say to summarize, and we've already gone through this, and if you want to catch up, you can look on the website, is that by the end of chapter 1, Job has lost virtually everything. He's lost all of his children. They've all died. He's lost his massive estate. He was the greatest man of the East. He's lost his wealth, his possessions, many of his servants, We saw him prostrate himself on the ground uh, after he's gotten a barrage of one bad uh, report after another. This has happened. This has happened. It's more than one person could take in a lifetime, let alone a day. And here's what we see him do. He prostrates himself on the ground and worships God. He does not do what Satan said he would do. Satan said, he'll curse you to your face. Job did not do that. Job said these famous words, Naked, Job 121, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will depart. And one writer said it's almost as if Job died that day because he says, naked, I came into the world. Naked, I will depart. And he had lost so much that day. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's the NIV. If you have anything else, New American Standard, and I think many others say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, all that Job went through, he did not sin. That's what Satan said he would do. Nor did he blame God. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we move into Job chapter 2, and we continue to watch this uh, man take so many terrible, disastrous hits in his life. He's really lost everything. A man who went from really... The, the riches of, of one of the, the, probably the most prosperous men of the East to really losing everything. And he bowed before you, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And Lord, worship is really a word that means you are worthy. It's your worship. It's you're worthy of our praise, but you're not just worthy of our praise when life is perfect. And that's what the book of Job shows us. 
But, Lord, we do wrestle with being a thankful people when things are out of whack, when we don't know which way life's going to go, or even when we're in the midst of a season where it's been very difficult and there, there's been misfortune and loss. And, and we want to learn how to worship you in every season of life, in the good times and the bad times, whether, as Paul said, we're abounding or whether we have nothing. We want to learn the secret of contentment, and you are that secret. It's leaning into you into every, in every season of life, and there are going to be wonderful, joy seasons, and there's going to be times when we, don't, we can't make sense, heads or tails, of what's going on or what, even what you're doing. We pray that you would teach us to be people of worship in every season. So would you lead tonight where you want it to go? Would you lead us by your Holy Spirit? May our hearts be soft to your word and to your voice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now in Job 1.22, through all this, Job did not sin, or nor did he blame God. Job did not play the blame game. And our first parents played the blame game when they fell. You know, Adam said, it's the woman that you gave to me, right? Implying that it was God's fault, right? She's the one you gave to me. It's your fault. And then the woman, of course, blamed the serpent. And we've always joked that the serpent turned, you know, to look for someone to blame, but he didn't have a leg to stand on. So he couldn't do much. But... But blaming God for things that go wrong in life is a it's a pretty natural human tendency. Sometimes people do it over relatively silly things like their team lost a game or, you know, they didn't perform well, uh, you know, maybe in a sporting contest. I, I remember some years ago we'd play slow pitch uh, or over the line with some family members, and I remember one of my family members would hit a ball, and I would make the catch, and I remember making a leaping catch on one of my cousins, and, he's, and he started calling out to God like it was God's fault that I caught his line drive. And I said, that wasn't God's fault. That was just a great catch, right? Don't blame God for that. But on a serious note, when life goes haywire and things are hard to understand or make sense of, that's when, you know, oftentimes we look up and, and our question is, why? Why has this happened? And Job could have dissected that in a number of different ways, but what he did is he decided to worship and he did not blame God. And in fact, he blessed God instead of cursing. Satan said he was going to curse God but Job blessed the Lord. Some of me may, may wonder about what is this concept, us blessing God? Can we bless God? Well, the idea of us blessing God is that we're speaking well of him. The idea of uh, giving him honor or praise. In the Greek language, the word bless has this idea of to speak well of. And that's what Job did. He would not speak ill of God. Because Job knew that everything that he had was from God. The very breath in his lungs was from God. The planet that you walk on is from God. The air that you breathe is from God. The eyes you look out uh, through into the world are from God. Everything you have is from God. You would not exist if there wasn't God. 
God's the one that decided to make you human. God's the one that formed you in your mother's womb. God's the one that gave you the gifts that you have. And John the Baptist sums it up well when he said a man or a woman would have nothing unless it first been given to them from heaven. So before we have this com- complex that, or this, this idea that God owes us something, we need to be very careful. It's God's world, God's universe, and he has been gracious to us, right? And all of us could say, no matter what you've been through tonight, and I know some of you have been through some very hard things, just what happened to Job in this single day is probably more than most of us can even imagine. More heartache, more loss, more devastation, Ten children dying in one day. I mean, that, that is just almost unimaginable. And even with that, we can think of Sri Lanka this last weekend on Resurrection Weekend when people were in church with their family and suicide bombers blew up churches and many people died. And so even though we can say, you know, Job went through so much, it doesn't mean that others don't face this. And, and this is part of the reason why I think the book of Job is in our Bible is a place of refuge for you and for me. In fact, I would tell you that I believe that God has his divine purposes, but one of the divine purposes that I know, I think I can authoritatively say, is that the reason that the book of Job and the story of Job is in the Bible is for you and for me. When we do hit these tough times in life, when it's hard to make sense of things. Now, the word again opens chapter 2, Again, there was a day, and we now move back to a heavenly scene. We've been going back from heaven to earth. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, we've identified those as angels, came to present themselves, and this mirrors uh, chapter 1, verse 6, before the Lord, and Satan, or the Satan, also came among them. He was among the sons of God. We've concluded from Genesis 6 and other places that these are the angels. Satan, of course, is a fallen angel, and he's come among them. We don't know what day it was, but it does seem to indicate that there, there was a regular time that the angelic beings checked in with God. And since Satan has already fallen at this point, Satan seems to regularly present himself before the Lord. And he presents himself in an uh, inferior role. He's a fallen angel. God is God. Satan is a fallen angel. But he checks in before the Lord. He presents himself before the Lord. This is scene four, is what commentators say. And here, is, here are these angels before Yahweh, before the Lord. The language is almost identical to the scene that we saw earlier in chapter one. There was a day. I don't know how long it's been since everything that happened in chapter 1. Uh, I don't know how much, you know, Job is, is, the other things are fresh in his mind. But you can write down Revelation 12.10, which does indicate that Satan does have access to heaven and accuses the brethren day and night. And in my view of the end times, I do not believe that that has stopped yet. I believe that Satan will have access to the throne of God until the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. So I believe that that is still occurring, that Satan has access, and he is still accusing the brethren. But his accusations are meaningless because if if you're in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account, and no accusation from Satan against you will ever stand. Because you're forgiven. Amen? You have the righteousness of Christ. So the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? 
Then Satan answered the Lord, chapter 2, verse 2, and he said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, we know that Peter painted the devil as a roaring lion, roaming about as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8, seeking someone to devour. And so we imply from this that as Satan is roaming around to and fro upon the earth, he is doing his devouring work. And we can see from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that this is his intent to devour. He has asked permission to get at Job. He's going to ask for more permission in chapter 2. And it would seem, just reading between the lines, that he looks He goes on walkabout around the earth looking for people who claim to be servants of the Lord and makes them his target. Because remember, in 1 Peter 5.8, the warning is to brethren, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's not for non-Christians. That's for you. And you're supposed to resist him firm in your faith, and he will flee from you. You're supposed to put on the armor of God that you may take your stand against the schemes of the devil, right? We've learned those Bible verses. And so Satan describes what he's been doing. He's been roaming around on the earth, but he still has access to heaven, but he also has access, obviously, to the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, a lot of us just want to scream for a a second time, No, don't do it, Lord. Don't bring Job up again, please. We know how that went in chapter 1. Now, had Satan considered God's servant Job prior to the conversation in chapter 1? Yes. Because when God brings up Job, Satan says the reason that he follows you, he worships you, he honors you, is you've put a hedge about him. You've blessed the work of his hands. You see, Satan already knew about Job. It's not like God was just bringing Job to Satan's attention for the first time. It would appear that Job uh, has been protected from Satan's attacks for quite some time. I would, I would read between the lines again and say to you, this is my own conjecture, that Satan's probably tried on multiple occasions to get at Job. That's why he says, you put a hedge about him. I can't get at him. They both already know about Job. He's the greatest man in the East. He's a follower of God. He offers sacrifice just in case his children may have cursed God. And so I think that Satan has been targeting Job all along and... Uh, This gives me a little different perspective about why God brings Job up in the first place. Obviously, God knows everything. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, the Lord says of Job that there's nobody like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil or he turns away from evil. He's a good man. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you, God saying to Satan, incited me against him to ruin him without cause. If you have the ESV, it says to destroy him without reason. And I want to remind you, those of you studying the Bible and kind of forming your theology, that you understand that the Bible 
clearly declares that Job was a good man. There is nothing the Bible says that came at Job because it was his fault. Because he didn't honor God or he had, so he had some secret sin in his life. If you ever hear somebody say that to try to prove a point that bad things only happen when you lack something or you don't have enough faith or whatever, don't buy it. The Bible debunks that. Emphatically, the Bible is saying that Job was a very upright man, a blameless man. There was something else going on. And the incitement was to ruin him without cause or destroy him without reason. There was no reason. There was no reason, no wrong that Job had done why this calamity happened to him. And can I just say to you that we need to be careful when we don't understand something that we don't do the blame game and make it to the man in the mirror. Because here's what we sometimes do. If we don't blame God, then what do we start to do? We start to blame ourselves. And it's something like this. Have you ever said this before? What did I do to deserve this? And we usually don't say it once, right? What did I do to, what did I do to deserve this? And sometimes we've met the enemy, and it is us. And we took the gun, pointed it at our foot, and shot it. Ow! The smoking gun was in our hand. Now, if you did that, then you are to blame. (laughs) But God still has grace for you even if you did that because we've all probably shot ourselves in the foot maybe multiple times. But not everything in life is because you did something wrong. Sometimes, please hear what I'm about to say. Sometimes what comes at you is simply a test. And God does test his people. God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. And Abraham was a good man. Sometimes tests come your way. God is in the business of testing. You might say, why does he do that? To grow you. Because he knows that unless he stretches you and tests you, your faith won't increase. It's easy just to kick back when everything is just going calmly and easy in life. And Job went through a test, and that's what it was. It was a test, and it was bigger than just Job. It wasn't just about Job. It's about all of us who read his story. And it's more than just humans. Job's witness is even to angels. Because the fallen angel who leads a rebellion of fallen angels watched Job pass the test and did not believe that Job would be a man of integrity. He said, he'll curse you to your face. I know it. God said, okay, let's see. Did he? No. Satan, you lose. You're wrong. But see, that was Satan's view of the best of God's people that they would only worship, they would only honor him when the blessings were rolling in. And Job proved even that angelic being wrong. Job literally continued to hold tenaciously to his integrity. A man or a woman who hold to their integrity do what's right despite the circumstances. You might want to write that down. 
A man or woman of integrity will do what's right despite the circumstances. Situational ethics don't work. You want to be a consistent man or woman no matter the situation. You believe what you believe no matter what your coworkers are saying, no matter what way the cultural winds are blowing. If you know that you have stood on the bedrock of God's word, why would you change just because the cultural winds are blowing this way or that way? Believe me, they're going to change again and again and again as long as man is on this planet. So you have to decide that you're going to be a man or a woman of integrity no matter what happens. Somebody's put it this way. Integrity is being the same on the inside as you are on the outside. And so the Lord is obviously pleased with Job and his character because he begins to boast on him again. He says, look, consider my servant Job. You incited me against him. And this means that God is ultimately responsible for Job's test, not Satan. God had to allow it. God allowed Satan to have this uh, opportunity to tempt Job. And remember, Satan wants to tempt. God simply wants to test. Sometimes Satan is that tool. The test against Job had been brutally executed, as attested by the verb to ruin him without a cause. It literally does mean to swallow him. But Satan was wrong about Job. Job did not curse God. He blessed him. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Ha, 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 ha. Not done yet. Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Now, Satan did not respond to, Have you considered my servant Job? How he's upright, how he holds his integrity. Satan's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's move on from that. See, he doesn't want to admit he's wrong. He doesn't want to say he's wrong. He just wants to move on to yet another challenge, even though he's proven wrong. And Satan says, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. The origin of the proverb, skin for skin, is disputed. Some think, from reading from a study Bible, it originated from the practice of bartering for animal skins. Others believe that the phrase is similar to life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In the last half of the verse, Satan charges that Job would be willing to lose his possessions, note it, or even his family, as long as his life was spared. And that appears to be the essence of the proverb. Read it again. Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. See, self-preservation is now what's on the table. Yeah, you took everything away. Yes, he lost his children. Yes, he lost his possessions. Yes, he lost some of his servants and his livestock and his estate. But you haven't touched him yet. If his life is on the line, well, that's a different matter altogether. Here's what Satan is saying. Man is selfish. He will give anyone or anything as long as he protects his own life. All other things are dispensable to man. Satan is still accusing Job of being like all other men. He is saying he hasn't truly been tested until his very health and his very life are at stake. Then he will give anything for his life. I hope that you can begin to see that we've, when we call this series the problem of evil and the power of the gospel, that the gospel begins to illuminate in the pages of the book of Job. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us 
So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We should esteem Philippians to others as more important than ourselves. We should have this attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though in very nature God, made himself nothing of no reputation. He became a man. He came as a man. He died on the cross for us. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love thwarts the enemy's plots Every single time. But before we move on from here, I not only want you to see the gospel against the problem of evil, but I want you to see a solution for every time the enemy attacks you. This may be the most important moment in this sermon, so please hear what I'm about to say. Satan thrives in environments of pride and selfishness. It is what he is banking on. And you can bank on this, that virtually every test in this life that you face, you will have to fight away your pride and fight away your self-centeredness. But when Christ's love is there, when his power is present, there's no need for law and the enemy has no place to work because he works best in the environment of pride and selfishness because he knows it so well. Because that's why he fell in the first place. That's what he knows. And he believes that there's a whole train of others like him. And do you know what? He's right. And that is why we have so many disasters in the world that we have. Because in those environments, Satan has flourished. If he can appeal to your pride, your self-centeredness, your selfishness, I'm not going to lay down my rights. I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And Satan loves that because he dangles the carrot and says, good, yeah, good for you. And all of a sudden, you've taken the bite, and you may have won an argument, but you lost the war. This is how he works. This is what he's banking on. And even in Job's case, he's saying, look, all you got to do is let me get at him, his health, and his life, and he'll curse you. Put forth, verse 5, your hand now. Touch his bone. Touch his flesh. The bone was the idea of where a lot of sicknesses in the ancient world were started or landed. Touch his bone, his flesh, and what does Satan say? He'll curse thee to thy face. Satan responds to the Lord Commending Job, doesn't acknowledge Job's integrity. He lives in denial, apparently. And now he just says, wait a minute. This is what you need to do. Skin for skin. As soon as it's about him, as soon as it's about his health and his life, as soon as you let me at him, oh, he's going to curse you to your face. The psalmist says in Psalm 51.8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. David writing Psalm 32 says, Your hand was heavy upon me. Oftentimes when we feel sick, we feel it in our very bones. Sometimes we ache and we hurt. And there's sicknesses that, you know, we sometimes say, Man, my bones are aching. Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. And he'll surely curse you to your face, NIV. So Satan has essentially guaranteed what Job will do if, if personally afflicted. 
And so the Lord said to Satan, shockingly, <laughs> you kind of don't want to read this verse, but here it is. Behold, he is in your power. Only, and again, God draws the boundary, only spare his life. But he is in your power. Now, I could say that the Lord rejects Satan's reasoning, but he allows Job into Satan's power. If you were writing the story, would you stop here? Would you say to Satan in the story, enough is enough. How much can one man take? But no, God opens the door to Satan again to let him at Job, and now it is very person. The only boundary is he can't kill Job, but Satan would like to. He would love to destroy Job. Do you guys remember the man who had the legion of demons? Uh, he met Jesus there on the other side of the shore. And he was, there was another with him, but one of the gospels, uh, at least one of the gospels, just focuses on the one man. And remember, he's shrieking and howling at night, and he lives among the tombs. He lives among the dead, and he cuts himself with stones and, and rocks, and he's just, he's just got a marred image. And those who are experts in this field say that when it comes to demonic possession or the work of the devil in a human's life, when the door is open, what he wants to do is destroy not only the image of God in you, but to take your very life, to destroy you, to drink you down. You can see his work early on in the Bible. You can see his work with Cain and Abel and many, many others. And so... Here's the trial that comes at Job. The power is now given to Satan, except for taking his life. Jesus, when he's in the garden, the chief priests, the officers, the temple uh, of the temple, the elders came against him. Jesus said, have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? Luke 22, 52, 53. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Interestingly enough, Jesus was, uh, the power of darkness was allowed access to him to take him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the power of darkness, this hour of darkness is yours, and to take him all the way where? To a cross, and he died on that cross. Now, we know ultimately that was God's will, right? God allowed him to die on that cross to triumph over principalities and powers, but Satan was the tool possessing Judas Iscariot, leading the, the group into the garden to take Jesus and then to crucify him. And Satan was behind that in this sense of possessing Judas and so forth. And so there's an interesting kind of intersection here with the ultimate will of God and Satan working as well. And into Job's life, Satan is going to have full reign except for being able to kill him. Another test, another trial. I wrote this in my notes, something to ponder. What would happen if you and I started to consider every trial as an opportunity to pass a test and turn complaining and questioning into thanksgiving, blessing, and prayer? What if you and I, and I'll put the emphasis on me, and I have to tell you, this week I tried it. <laughs> it's a whole turn of events when you do this because 
you know, you can find yourself, uh, you, you, you might be saying, I'm growing in these areas, and I'm doing pretty well in my walk, and I'm going to Bible studies, and I'm praying, and I'm putting on worship music more than secular music, or whatever, whatever those things are for you. But sometimes when we're going through the difficulties of life, and they may have stacked one upon another for you, it's my internal voice that I have to fight. Anybody else out there? So it's not so much, you know, what I always say on the outside, but it's some of my inner complaining that goes on. I don't know why. It's that, that self-talk that needs no interpretation. That's why I'm giving you just the voice you can't understand. Because I'm sure you can fill in your own blanks. Over there, and there's a and that's just usually like a 10 second span so I was I was in my house the other day and I went you know what stop it you ever ever done that to yourself stop it alright Lord I'm going to pray for five other people that I know are probably struggling right now alright I'm going to start giving you thanks because that the door wouldn't be broken if I didn't have a house. And this wouldn't be happening if I didn't have children. And thank you for the children. <laughs> Did you hear that in other rooms? And, and I want to thank you. for. And I, and I started to try to do these turnarounds, right? Instead of whining and complaining about this, I started giving God thanks for the fact that it's even a possibility that it could exist in my life because I have this. And that's why this springs from that. And thank you, Lord, and thank you, Lord. And I pray for this person, Lord, and I, and I pray for this other person, Lord, and, and I'm praying for her and him and who and her, and wow. I think the devil went, we got to get out of here. Hmm. See, 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You've been distressed by various trials. Sometimes various trials are necessary. Why? Because God has a divine purpose. Sometimes when you're going through something, it's not about you at all. What? But the world tells me it's all about me. In fact, maybe Job's whole situation was not about him at all. Maybe it was about something much bigger. And imagine being Job. You don't have the information about what's been going on in heaven. All you are is down here on the earth trying to figure out what happened. What'd you do wrong? What happened to your stuff? Your family? Would you turn over to 2 Corinthians 4 for a second? 2 Corinthians 4, all the way in your New Testament. 414, 2 Corinthians 414. The Apostle Paul went through a lot of stuff, right? <clears throat> a lot of suffering. This is one section that just I wanted to show you. He says, 2 Corinthians 414, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, 414, will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. 
Therefore, because God's doing this work and it's touching so many people, even though they're suffering, therefore we don't lose heart. 16. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Which turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. God has a bigger plan than just this lifetime, this world, this decade. And that's what's hard for me to see as a human being, I confess. 1 Peter 3, the famous apologetics verse of 1 Peter 3.15 is actually surrounded by some interesting verses that have to do with suffering. 1 Peter 3, let's pick it up in verse 14. It says, but even if you should suffer for the, ra- the sake of righteousness, 1 Peter 3.14, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for what? The hope that is in you. If you look at verse 14, the hope is manifested in trouble, intimidation, struggle, suffering for righteousness sake. And that's the place that Peter seems to be indicating in context where you're going to give an account for the hope that you have. Why are you like that? Why are you giving an answer for hope in the midst of such difficulty? But you're to do it with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Now, there's many other places I could take you to, but let's return to the book of Job. I think you get the point. When we are on God's team, God's working on many different levels, and a lot of it has to do with how he wants to work in the world. And so... God allows Satan this open door. Job can't die because then the trial would be over and the story would be over. And so he can't touch his life. And immediately we see in Job 2.7, Satan went out. It's like he couldn't wait from the presence of the Lord. And now for the first time in the story, it's a direct attack from the devil. Remember in chapter 1, the devil used what we would call acts of God in insurance policies, wind and and so forth. He used the Sabians and the Chaldeans. He used, um, so they were human agents. And they used lightning and hurricane winds. But now it's Satan and he smote Job. Notice he is the, the, the direct cause. He smote Job with sore boils, Job 2, 7, loathsome sores, ESV, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, if you've ever had, how many of you have gotten chicken pox when you were older? Did you get it when you were older? I remember getting chicken pox when I was older. And it was the most horrible, terrible, weak I think of my life. Now, some of you have gotten some other things, and you would say, and that was the most horrible. Shingles, I've heard, is just terrible. 
and hangs on. Can I get a witness? Over here, coach went through it. And so uh, just terrible. And so I remember I had him everywhere. I couldn't even brush my hair because I had the chicken pox in my hair. And I couldn't even put the hairbrush in there. And I wanted to sing the VeggieTales song. Oh, where is my hairbrush? But anyway, never mind. So I don't even know where that came from. Sorry. So, but I remember I was miserable and I had a fever. And uh, I, I just, I put on the uh, calamine lotion and I would cover my body, layer my body with the calamine. And then I'd get sick of the calamine and I'd get in the tub. And then I got out of the tub and whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> calamine lotion again. And, and then back in the tub again. It was miserable. Can you imagine having oozing, loathsome boils from the bottom of your feet to the crown of your head and everywhere in between? Some of you have had some rashes and things like that. And it's horrible. Job, uh, his sufferings were chronicled by one author who says the following. We don't know how to categorize what Job suffered, but from Job's speeches, some of the symptoms that he suffered included Painful pruritus, that is boils and the, the desire to scratch them. Disfiguration, Job 2.12, the painful boils right in our section. Purulent, that is infected pus-filled weeping sores that scab over, uh, that crack and ooze, that's Job 7 verses 4 and 5. Sores infected with worms, Job 7 verse 5. Fever with chills. Job 21, 6 and 30, 30. Darkening and shriveling of the skin, Job 30, verse 30. Eyes red and swollen from weeping, Job 16, 16. And diarrhea, Job 30, verse 27. Sleeplessness and delirium, Job 7, 4 and 13 and 14. Choking, Job 7, 15. Bad breath, Job 19.17, emaciation, Job 19.20, excruciating pain throughout his entire body, Job 30, verse 17, and I'm sure you can find more. Have you ever been, had one thing going on, and that thing is pretty terrible, and then another thing hits you at the same time in the same zip code? And you're like, oh, no, this happened, and now this. No, Lord, please. Oh, yeah. And it's a double whammy. And Job had it coming so much from every direction on top of just losing everything in his life. Can life get any worse? This is where, you know, somebody even in the Bible have said, just take me out, God. Boils were one of the plagues on Egypt. I think it's plague number six as Moses threw uh, uh, the kiln into the sky and it broke out as boils. In Luke 16, it was these boils are oozing sores on Lazarus, the poor man. And these boils are even mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, 27 as a curse the Lord will smite you with boils of Egypt, with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. And Deuteronomy 28, 35, the Lord will strike you if you don't follow him. This is the curse on the knees, on the legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Deuteronomy 28, 35. And if indeed Job was familiar with these kinds of truths, you know what he probably figured? I'm dying. 
These manifestations in my body are simply signs that I'm on the way to death. He was living in the shadow of death. And it was so bad that he took a posture, a piece of broken pottery, Job 2.8, to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Job was humbled to the ground, devastated, and so devastated he went outside the city walls and sat down literally on the town's ash heap, which was a collection of the ashes from the city's ovens. Broken pots were thrown out there and other refuse. It was the abode of the outcasts. This is where the rubbish continually burned in a heap outside the city gate. This place, a place like this, Jesus would later use as the best human image to represent hell itself. Job was in his own personal hell. He's out there sitting on the ash heap among the garbage, the refuse, the broken pottery. And of course, there's a piece of broken pottery right there all around him. And he picks up one of the broken pieces and probably from itching, he begins to try to get parts of his body from itching so incessantly and desperately. And even one writer said maybe he's in so much misery that he began to cut himself. You know, there's an epidemic of cutting right now in our world. People who lacerate themselves as a way to escape pain or deal or cope with their pain. And if you struggle with that, you're not alone, but it's not the answer to hurt yourself. And I don't think Job was cutting himself in that sense. I think he was probably using it to try to deal with the pus and the, and the itching and all that. He was devastated, sitting literally or at least figuratively in a place that would be known as hell, the garbage dump, the perpetual fire. And it's at this time that you would hope that someone in your inner circle, someone who loves you very much, is committed to you, would come into your life and speak some words of hope. You know, you would hope that someone would walk over to the outside the city gate and say, man, I know it's been a bad week. I'm praying for you. I love you. It'll be all right. You're a good man. It's okay. Thank you for modeling faith in front of me. But, Instead, Job's wife, the only mention of her in the entire story, says these words, nine. And we're only going to verse 10. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Have a nice day. Thanks, honey. What? Your wife, the one that you're in covenant with. Now, remember, he had older children, so he's been in a relationship with this woman for quite some time. And Genesis 2.24 says, And the two shall become one flesh, a covenant partner, your life partner, the love of your life, the one that knows you the best, loves you the most, in good times and bad times, good hair days and bad hair days, drool in the morning, stuck to the side of your mouth, still loves you. And that's what she's got for you? Curse God and die. Wow. You still hold fast? You're still going to be a man of integrity? What is going on with Job's wife? 
We don't know what her name was, by the way. She's just called Job's wife. But I found some extra biblical literature that said her, her name was Merciless. <laughs> That's a joke. There is no extra biblical literature that I know of. But that is second opinions from Pastor Michael. Now, God had commended Job for his integrity. His wife seemingly mocks him for it. However, I think we need to ask some deeper questions. Because maybe Job's wife said, curse God and die because she wanted his pain to be over. You know, maybe if we give her the benefit of the doubt for the moment, maybe she said she knew in her view of the world and God, if you curse God, you're in trouble, right? You get the wrath of God. So maybe she's saying, just end it. Curse God. Don't hold your integrity. It's obvious that God doesn't like you. <laughs> Something like that. So if you curse him, maybe he'll kill you, and at least your pain will be over. And let's remember that she's also in pain. She's lost everything that he lost. And let's also remember that when we're grieving, sometimes things come out of our mouth that we, we don't even know what to say or do. We've got to cut some people some slack in these situations. But I will tell you this. She may have wished the peace of death on Job, to put it that way. But whatever her motive, she was a mouthpiece of terrible temptation. Augustine calls her the devil's assistant. And Calvin calls her Satan's tool. Because she asked Job to do what Satan wanted him to do. Satan said, he'll curse you to your face. And his wife became the mouthpiece of the temptation to do what Satan wanted. Curse God and die. That's Satan through his wife. And sometimes, sadly, because of the power of this little instrument called the tongue, and James chapter 3, James tells us about the tongue, and he says, oh, woo. right? Who can tame this little thing? We, we'd like to think we can, but the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It's set on fire. Uh, the, it sets on fire the course of our life. It's set on fire by hell. Every species of beasts, birds, of reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things should not be this way. How many of us, in a moment of grief, pain, tension, let something go out of this instrument and wet? <gasps> and even if it didn't roll out, Sometimes it rolling in is enough, and you go, oh, where did that come from? That, oh, sorry. That, maybe that was right to hit that. Uh, that came from hell. I mean, that's how it feels. Ah. Sometimes you just have to pray, Lord, just help me to take every thought captive. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Job's wife Certainly wasn't an encouragement at this time, whatever her motive. Now, what does Job do? Well, 
he does address her, and this is the final verse. Job said to her, merciless, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was an insertion, not, not there in the original. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Foolish is nebal. It is literally the strongest Hebrew word for a fool. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. So he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. You speak as a woman who doesn't know God. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity, misfortune, struggle, pain? In all this, Job, what's your Bible say? He did not sin with his lips. Can you see Satan over in the corner? Rats! What more can I do to this guy? Even his wife became my tool. And he won't curse God. He said to her, and you know, this may be a model for some of us when we're in a spousal disagreement and our, there a, a barb comes at us. Ooh, this belongs to you, <laughs> right? No, it's yours. Keep it. <laughs> and the response biblically is, you speak as one of the foolish women. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's a joke. I'm kidding. You could put man in there. You fool. No. No, don't do that. See, actually, she was speaking as a fool. She became an instrument for the enemy. She was being foolish. But could we cut her some slack? She was grieving. So many blows against her and her husband. I mean, man. Sometimes we have to step back and say, who are we? What would we have done if all of this happened to us? I mean, some of us could admit that we've not acted much better with much less coming at us. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not sin in what he said in IV. Wow. What an example. I want to read Psalm 19. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and meditate on these words. And Pastor Chris, if you can come up. Here's Psalm 19, 9 through 14. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ where we find refuge, where Jesus, we can see in, in the story of Job, the shadow of Jesus who suffered more than the cumulative sufferings of Job and all mankind. He suffered by dealing with my sin and being treated as if he had committed my sins and the wrath of God came down on him in full measure. He drank the cup. 
he was treated in that terrible way. And he did it for me to defeat my greatest enemies of sin and death, to defeat the devil who has the fear of death hanging over mankind all of their lives. But we are free in Jesus, and we thank you for the power of the gospel that Jesus, the, the greatest one of all, the blameless one, took my punishment and wrath at the cross, suffered for me. Uh, the suffering of the cross is certainly what comes to mind. And thank you that he defeated principalities and powers and secured our place in heaven. And thank you that the accuser no longer can say anything that's going to stick because we have the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. If you don't know that forgiveness, that righteousness, would you put your trust in Jesus tonight? Just say, Lord, save me. Thank you that you're greater than Job, greater than David, greater than all these Bible characters, and that you love me so much. You don't have to have perfect words, but ask him in tonight that you came to save me, to suffer the just for the unjust, to bring me to God. Thank you, Lord. Save me. I turn from my sin, and I place my trust in you. Dear Saint, whatever you're going through tonight, I pray that the Lord has encouraged you through the story of Job, that you'd hang on, you'd be of good courage, and I pray that he'd give you the grace you need tonight to make it through whatever you're struggling with tonight. And Father, I just ask your blessing on this precious congregation. Thank you for all who came out tonight, those who may hear this later, that they would find refuge in the person of Christ, his finished work on the cross, his triumphant resurrection from the dead. And until we see him face to face, help us to live well, to, to do well with the tests that we face, to know that they will grow our faith and we'll have a greater testimony in this world. In Jesus' name I ask and all God's people said, amen.